All righty, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm going to look at verses 9 through 12 to, as we get started here. Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. We're going to spend a chunk of our time tonight just on these verses. And then, like I told you before we got started, we'll move into 13 through 18 in just a little bit. We've already looked at how Paul had encouraged the brothers and sisters to increase in their love for each other. Go to back to 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 and 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And now he says to them in verse 9 of chapter 4, now concerning this brotherly love, that he's wanting them to do more and more. He says, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For, and for that indeed is what you're already doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So what we're going to look at tonight is a couple of questions. How had they already been doing it? In other words, as they've been loving each other already, in what way had they been loving each other? And two, how had they been taught by God to do it? He said, you don't have any need for anybody to write you about loving each other. You've already been taught by God to do that. So what we're going to deal with is the second question first. How had they been taught by God? And then we're going to deal with how had they been actually doing it? Now, if you were with us last week, you remember, <clears throat> we looked at the fact that it's God who's going to move in us to live out in us what he wants from us. All right. It's God who actually does the work as we learn to walk in faith and walk in obedience, trusting that he will do what he says. Now, we're going to talk tonight a lot, and you're going to see this come up over and over, about the difference between believing that God can and God will. There's a lot of people that believe God can do things. But believing that he will do it in your life is where your faith moves from little faith to great faith. Do you understand? And unfortunately, in a lot of our lives, we believe God's able to do a whole lot of stuff. But do you really believe he will do it in your life? And that's what moves God. Not that he's only able, but that he's willing. And that's why in Luke chapter 11, when Jesus was praying, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, teach us to pray. John taught his disciples it's almost like they were saying, we're afraid you're going to say no. So they thought they had to throw in, well, John taught his disciples. You know when your kids were little and they were afraid they're going to ask you something and they're pretty sure you're going to say no, but then they'd say, well, Susie's parents are letting her. That's almost how that story in Luke chapter 11 reads as Jesus is praying and the disciples come to him and they say, teach us to pray. John taught his disciples. In other words, we're afraid you're going to say no. Maybe this will help you want to. And so Jesus deals with their, how they ask him to teach them to pray by telling them a story. He said, look, this friend came at midnight and he, he knocked on the door and the guy was already in bed with his kids. And he said, look, I've had some people come to my house. I don't have anything to give to them. Could you give me some bread? And, the, and Jesus says in the story, the guy answers his request. He gets up and, at midnight and he does it not because he's his friend, but because of his boldness or his shamelessness or his importunity, as it says in the King James in other words, what Jesus said was, this guy doesn't get up and answer and respond to what he requests because he's his friend. He does it because the guy saw him as someone not only that was able, 
but someone that would be willing. Because if you're going to go and knock on someone's door at midnight, you're not going to knock on just anybody's door. You're only going to knock on the door of the person that you know, first of all, knows is going to be able to do something about it and will be glad to do it. You understand? This ain't just the same and assume you're broke down on the side of the road somewhere at two in the morning and you have a cell phone, but you don't have AAA. Who are you going to call? Your brain's going to run through a Rolodex of your friends, but you're going to check a few of them off the list because there are some you know aren't going to be able to do anything. Others would be able to do it, but not very willing. Others would be somewhat willing, but they'd make you pay for it. You owe me, or they'll complain, why did you take better care of your car? You're going to call the person that you know you can call them at 2 in the morning, and they not only are going to be able, they'll be there in a minute because they'll be so glad you asked. Jesus, in that passage in Luke 11, was teaching them, when you come to the Father in prayer, you need to come with that kind of an attitude. Not only that I believe you're able, but I believe you're willing. I believe you want to do this. And that's really big. And now with that in mind, I'm going to remind you of some things we looked at last week, but also throw in some more. The scripture is very clear that God has planned ahead of time that those he comes to indwell, he will teach us. He'll speak to us. He'll direct us. He'll teach. Well, as Paul said, you've already been taught by God how to love one another. You know Philippians 2.13. It's God who works in you both to will and to work according to or act according to his good purpose. In 2 Thessalonians 3.5, you're in 1 Thessalonians 4, jump over to 2 Thessalonians 3.5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now, jump over to 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, look at verses 26 and 27. John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So this is a very interesting thing. He says, there's really, you don't have any need for someone to teach you, because you have the Holy Spirit within you, and he will teach you what you need, and he'll assure you and reassure you. Now, that doesn't mean people like me shouldn't be here. The Bible's real clear as well that God has designed that there be teachers and preachers. It's, uh, it's part of the gifts to the church that he's given. Some are apostles, some are prophets, some are evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Yet at the same time, we, you should never become addicted to feeding from only us. As I've said over and over, our job is to teach you how to get to know him, how to grow up into him who is ahead, how to be able to recognize his leading, how to feed on the word for yourself. I love it when people contact me, and I get this throughout the week many, many times, where people will send me emails or texts or phone calls, and they want to have a Bible question and stuff. I, I love that. If you ever wanted to do that, go ahead and do it. And if I'm able, I'll respond. But listen, if I'm the only person or you're only asking people and you don't really go to God... For your answer that's a problem and some of you are like well jim god shows you subconsciously you're saying he won't show me see there's a big difference between believing he can and whether or not he will there's a difference my prayer is that we'll move from believing that god's promises are true for everyone 
In James chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without finding fault. But when you ask, don't doubt. Believe that he will. If you doubt, you're a double-minded person, unstable in all your ways. And again, the scripture says that God is going to teach us. Let me, let me take you back. Go to John 14. Here in John 14, Jesus is beginning to teach his disciples about the coming Holy Spirit that's going to indwell them. He actually says in John 16, he says, it's good that I'm going away. Because if I go away, then the Holy Spirit can come. And in chapter 14, look at verses 15 and following. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. You ever notice the helper is in capital H in your Bibles? Because who is it? It's the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. He's telling them that the Holy Spirit's going to come and indwell them. He says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I'm in my Father and you're in me and I'm in you. Now, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my father will love him, and we'll come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Listen closely. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you a few things. No, it doesn't say that, does it? He'll teach you what? He'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Our job is to just put what he has said in our hearts. And there's lots of ways to do it. If, if you like mem memorizing, go ahead. But the Bible doesn't say that that's the way it's done. The Bible just says feed, study, treasure, meditate, read. Just however you, you're good at it or however you like, put the word in. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing the psalms. Whatever you want to do, get the word of God in your heart. Because when you have the word of God in your heart, the Holy Spirit has promised to bring it to your remembrance to make you understand it, help you understand all things. I love it, by the way, when sometimes after a study or even during the study, sometimes someone will come up and, or raise their hand and say, it's kind of like this. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even see that. That's awesome. That's great. I love that because that encourages me that you're hearing from God for yourself. That's what I want. That's what I really would want to see more than anything. You know what's more important to me than my kids obeying Be Jim and Becky's rules? them getting to know and follow God and hear him for themselves. Because it isn't always going to be mom and dad around or in their rules. And now that they're all grown and out of the house, man, I'm way more excited about the fact that they know how to hear God and walk with him for themselves. But go to John 16. Look at verse 12 and following, 12 through 15. In John chapter 16, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into what? All the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, you've got to stick with me here. 
Jesus, again, has said, there's more that I want to share with you, but you can't bear it right now. But when the Spirit comes, he's going to guide you into all the truth. Now, our immediate thinking is, cool, so as soon as the Holy Spirit comes in, I'll know all the truth. No, if Jesus, who is God, said there are things you're not ready for yet, the Holy Spirit, who is also God, will come who live within you, will know what you're ready for and what you're not. So real faith, when you say, I believe he will show me all things, says that I believe he will show me all things, and it doesn't mean he has to do it today. If you really believe that he'll show you, if you don't have insight right now, you don't have wisdom, the Bible says that sometimes we just need to pray and ask for the peace that passes understanding. In other words, Lord, if you're not going to give me understanding right now, I believe you will, but you're also so good and so perfect that if you choose not to, you know why, and I'm not only not ready probably for what you have for me, would you at least give me some peace until you do it? And he'll do that. He's promised he will. So when the Bible says that he'll teach you all things, don't just immediately say, well, he, I sat there yesterday all afternoon from three to four, and he, I, I thought I would have all understanding, but he didn't give it to me. No, let him determine when and how much you're ready for, but he's promised he will. He's actually going to take what is his, the Father's and make it known to you. All right? Now, they had already been taught by God how to love each other. You know how that was evident? They started doing automatically what the early church was doing when they got saved, and the Thessalonians never had a class on how to love each other. They hadn't been through a discipleship program or Sunday school. They just naturally began to do what other believers in other parts of the world who got saved started doing, which meant they had been taught by God how to love each other. Now, what was the, how were they loving it? What were the things that they were doing? I, I put it in this phrase, and we'll break it down more. They, they had, how they had been loving each other were by living life together, sharing with each other to meet their physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. They were living life together, sharing with each other their physical, meeting physical needs and spiritual needs. Go to back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and look at verse 7. Says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now, in what way? We'll go back to chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Jump over to 1 Thessalonians 2. Look again at verses 13 and 14. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So here he says, you are an example but on top of that, you were imitators. You acted just like the churches in Judea. By the way, if you remember, we talked about this in our study of James, and we talked about it in our study of Thessalonians at the beginning. When a believer came to faith in Christ, especially if they were a Jew, they actually lost everything. They were kicked out of the synagogue. They lost their family relationships. They lost their jobs. 
That's why the church had to take care of each other, because some people hadn't had an income anymore at this time. And the Thessalonian church was a mixture of Jew and Gentile and all. And in the same persecution that the Jews suffered in Judea, over in Jerusalem and so on, the church in Thessalonica started to experience the same things. And they responded, he said, you were imitators of the churches in Judea. They responded in the same way that the early church did in Judea. Well, how did they respond? Go back to Acts chapter 2. Now in Acts chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 42 and we're going to read through verse 47. It says, and they, well, who's they? Well, if we just the previous verses, Peter just finished his sermon at Pentecost, and 3,000 people get saved there at Pentecost. And that's how many were added to the church at that time. In verse 42, these 3,000 plus the 120 at least that already existed, or at least 500 that were on the mountain, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. These new believers immediately just started living life together. They were outcasts in a lot of ways, so they just enjoyed the company of each other, and they made sure that everybody was being taken care of. And some people that had extra, they sold what they had and shared it with everybody else. Now, again, this isn't communism. It's not like everybody had to put it in a pile and everybody get it redistributed equally. No, if you go to Acts 5... You're going to see that uh, right after Barnabas had sold a piece of property and gave the amount to the church to take care of those who were in need, Ananias and Sapphira decide, well, we'll do the same thing, but we'll keep some of the money and pretend like we gave the whole amount. And Peter says to them, wasn't this yours to deal with whatever, before you sold it? And then after you sold it, wasn't the money yours to do whatever you wanted? This isn't communism. They, they chose to do this. They also chose to lie. But the whole deal is this. The attitude of the early church was... We want to really, all of a sudden they just had a love for each other and they wanted to make sure that they were taken care of and they just spent live life together and the Lord just started sending people. Now, I want to give you a little quiz. Go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to four things. To the apostles' teaching, which is study of the word of God. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper, and prayers. They devoted themselves to four things. Study the word. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, to each other. They devoted themselves to the Lord's Supper, to remember of why we're together because of Jesus. And they devoted themselves to prayer. What is there or not there, which unfortunately the church has been told to focus on? Evangelism. Isn't that interesting? We've been taught all these years to focus on evangelism. Evangelism, evangelism. Get the word out. Get the word out. The early church didn't focus on evangelism, yet the church grew rapidly. Why? Because they were focusing on what God told them to do, which is loving each other. And oh, by the way, as you do, it's a witness. And the Bible talks a lot about people asking us to give reason for the hope that lies within us. If they saw a group of people that actually loved each other, 
and didn't fight over the temperature of the sanctuary or the kind of songs we sing. And they actually really did care for each other and spent more time together than just Sunday morning and Sunday night or Wednesday night. But actually, you saw day by day they met in each other's homes and they're in the temple courts. They ate together. They just lived life together. That is extremely attractive to this world. And people are going to go, I'd like to be a part of something like that. And then the opportunity to share the gospel is tremendous. Jesus himself said, you will be my witnesses. My Holy, your Holy, when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, you will receive power. And, whole, and you'll be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. He didn't say you should be. He said you will be. Actually, I started to believe there's a big difference between trying to go do something for God that he said he would already do through me if I just walked with him. Back in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, when Jesus called his disciples, listen closely to what he said. He said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Didn't you, did you catch that? He didn't say, I want you to focus on being fishers of men. He said, I want you to focus on following me. I'll make you fishers of men. You walk with me, I'll set your appointments. The early church didn't devote themselves to evangelism, but evangelism was a huge part of what they did because the Lord just did it naturally, and the Lord added to the number. Years ago when I was pastor in Chicago, uh, we had the same program which we had had in the church I was at in, in, in New Orleans because it was Southern Baptist churches, and, you know, they all have the same programs. And Tuesday night was visitation night in New Orleans, and Monday night was visitation night in, in Chicago. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, visitation night is the night that is every week and it's mandatory and everybody's supposed to come and get some names of people that visited or prospects and we're supposed to go knocking on doors. And then we come back and tell everybody what, what happened. Well, in all my years of being in churches and being on staff and doing this, there was always something in my spirit that just felt something's not right. Now, of course, I thought it was because I was lazy and didn't want to keep doing this, but let me just chase something for a second. Where in the Bible does it say deacons have to meet every month? Nowhere close, especially in this day and age in which we live with Twitter and, and email and text and all this stuff. We can get together and deacons can meet whenever they need to and deal with something. But yeah, you're a brand new deacon, but you're going to sense if there's a monthly deacons meeting, there's going to be something in your spirit that goes, oh, it's deacons meeting night. And we've organized things that God says, I want it to be done naturally. Let me teach you how to do this and let it just flow. We organize it and kill it. Yeah, well, we think we do things better in efficiency, but actually the Spirit of God takes a step back when we take over to do things efficiently. And so when I finally, I'm pastor now of my first church that I'm pastor of, and I gathered the people that did come to Monday night visitation, and I said, are you guys feeling like I am that we're doing something out of obligation and duty that just the Spirit of God's just not in? Of course, you had one or two like, we, we got to do this. This is the, what you do. But for the most part, the attitude was, well, what do you got in mind? And I said, I'm not against visiting. I'm not against reaching out. But how about we let the Holy Spirit show us when and how instead of organizing it and making every Monday night and everybody's got to come and we got to be here at 6 and blah, blah, blah. And folks, I'm telling you what I'm sharing with you here is it's documented. We canceled the automatic mandatory Monday night visitation program and we told the church, here's how we want you to do it. If you would like to be a part of reaching out and letting people know about what God's doing here or talking to people about Jesus, you come tell us how you think God might want you to do it and we'll see how we can help you. We had some ladies say, we just love writing notes. If you could just 
give us some names of people that visited and we can just send them a handwritten thank you so glad you visited we're like that's awesome great idea a couple other people would say i like going and knocking on a door that's great we'll give you the number but why don't you do us this favor especially in chicago call them first and make an appointment don't just show up cold call them and say we'd love to come by and bring you a pie or whatever i got no problem with that if that's what god's gifted you to do why don't you go ahead and do it another guy came to me and he said my wife and i we would, if it's okay with you, we're going to look for a visitor each week, and we're going to take them and their whole family out to lunch. And they would. They literally would be watching to see if someone walked in that was new. And they'd run up to them and say, we're so glad you're here. It didn't matter if they had 17 kids. They would say, we would like to take you guys all out to lunch after church. We're somewhere you'd love to go. Our treat. And they would do this every week. I sometimes would pretend to be a visitor. I'd walk in and say, hey, hey Joe, I'm visiting today. And he'd say, you're not on my list. You know, kind of a deal. But at the same time, folks, once we stop trying to organize it and just let the Holy Spirit do it through us, how he had gifted each of us, documented what I'm about to tell you. We started averaging 20 visitors a Sunday. That was the average. In a little church in Chicago that when I started there, there were only 50 people. We started averaging 20 visitors a Sunday. And when I left there four and a half, five years later, we were running two services and almost 500. And you know why? Because we started letting the Holy Spirit do his work through us instead of us trying to do it for him. The early church didn't devote themselves to evangelism. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to each other. They devoted themselves to the Lord's Supper as a reminder of why they were together. And they devoted themselves to prayer. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Jump over to chapter 4. Look at verses 32 through 35. By the way, between chapter 2 and chapter 4, the church has grown even more. The number's gone to 5,000 plus. In chapter 4, verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There wasn't a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. By the way, has anybody read, I've, I've read through the scriptures, but maybe I missed it. Has anybody ever read anywhere where they had classes on how to love each other? Mm -mm. It was natural. It was just natural. It was the Holy Spirit living through them, and their desire was to make sure that everybody was taken care of. I, I, I'm going to stop for a second and say, say thank you to some of y'all. If not, I don't know how many of you, because I don't keep track of all this stuff. But let me just tell you, a lot of you give to Just a Preacher in such a way that you make it possible for us to go without charge. Wherever we go, churches will say, we've heard about what you do. Could you come and speak, and how much do you charge? And I say, we don't. They said, we don't understand. And we said, look, we're never going to, this is what we tell every church that calls. We say, we're never going to say to you, we will come and teach you God's word, but only if you promise us so much money first. We don't, if you give us nothing, we're still going to come. And God has taken care. And what people giving to the ministry, we're able to send books all over. We send books hundreds and hundreds. And this is not an exaggeration. Just in this latest book on Revelation that we've written and put out, we have already spent over $60,000 just printing and shipping books all over the globe, free of charge. You know why? Because people have this kind of heart. 
they just say, I want to be a part of what God's doing. And they write big checks and say, here, put it in the Just Preacher account and go, send, go, go preach and go do it. Because your attitude is, we want others to know about Jesus and we want you. To, and so if God's made it possible, I just want to tell you, thank you. We're going to be sending out a newsletter in a few weeks that just kind of details this in more ways to let you all know. It's such a privilege to be able to go and to do it and to just freely pass it out and to share the God's word without charge. But it's because of this kind of an attitude. People that they're not living for here anymore. They're now part of a family and they know they got a new home and they're not living to store it all up here and they trust God's going to take care of them. And when he puts it on their heart, they give and they share. Now, unfortunately, which will happen because people are people, as you're going to see in just a little bit, there was a problem that arose with this kind of a attitude where the church made sure everybody was taken care of. See, Paul was teaching that Jesus' return could be at any moment. And they were to be ready. And that's why when we move into verses 13 through 18, you're going to see the early church there in Thessalonica had some questions that they asked Timothy that Timothy passed on to Paul that Paul had to write back to them about because some th the return of Jesus hadn't happened as fast and some people were dying. And so Paul had been teaching them, look, don't live for here. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to take his church. He's going to remove us. Before that day of the Lord, before the judgment on the world, we're going to go be with him. And it could happen at any moment. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians, 15 and we who are alive will be caught up and we're not all going to sleep we're all going to be changed at the same time he taught them to be ready at any moment well there were some that said well I just lost my job they're all making sure that I got food and Jesus could be back any minute and they decided to become lazy and not work and live off the church go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and look at verses 11 and 12 again. He says, and, not only urge you, brother, to love more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Did you catch that? He says, as wonderful as it is that you all are sharing with each other, some of you are going to want to take advantage of this. And Paul says, don't do that. You need to go find a job. You need to get to work. And you need to be able to not be dependent on anyone, not expect the church to pay your bills. At the same time, go over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians 3, it's starting in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It wasn't because we don't have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. 
Now, as for you, brothers, don't go wearying and doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So we see clearly that there was a problem, that there were those who were amongst that three, five thousand, six thousand, whatever the number was, who thought this is pretty cool. And they decided, I like being a part of this group. Everybody's making sure my bills are paid and I've got food. And they got very lazy. And Paul said, look, well, let me put it to you this way. Over the years, as I've taught that Jesus is going to come and rapture his church, I've actually had a few Christians make this statement. Well, then why don't we just run up all our credit cards? Because Jesus will just take us out. We'll let Satan and the world that's left behind pay the bill. And they were serious. Their thinking was, hey, if he's really coming back, let's just run our credit cards up. And we don't have to worry about paying the bill. It's the same mentality. Let's just let someone else take care of it. Well, go back to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to do two more things on this, and then we'll head to start breaking down verses 13 through 18. But go to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at verse 28. Not only does God want us to work and not be dependent on anyone, He wants us to work for another reason. And by the way, when I say work, I'm not talking it's wrong to be retired. I'm just saying in your retirement, let God show you what to do with your money. In Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, listen, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. One of the ways that God will teach you about his love for others is he's going to teach you how to be generous. He's going to put that in your heart and you're going to want to share He's saying, look, I'm not wanting you to be not dependent on anyone and just work for yourself. And this is my money and I've worked my really hard and, and I don't want to give it away because I, really, I mean, this is for me. I've, you could have that attitude. God says, that's not my attitude. I gave up a lot to become poor so that you could become rich. I actually want you to have the same heart in you that I have. I want you to have a desire to give of yourself for other people. And so part of the reason why we're to work is not so that we won't be dependent on others, but also so that we'll have something to share. And so just let the Holy Spirit talk to you and show you, because he's going to teach you what he wants you to do. This is where the preacher sins by saying, okay, here's what you all got to do now. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit will show you how he wants you to apply these truths. But go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I'm going to show you how Paul used the Macedonian believers. And by the way, Thessalonica is in Macedonia. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 5. Paul used the Macedonian believers as an example of this grace of giving. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Now, what he means is this. They first gave their tithes, if you will, to the church. But then on top of that, even though they were poor, they gave money to us to go share with the churches in Jerusalem. 
The attitude of the Thessalonians was, we've heard that our brothers and sisters over there in, in Judea are really having it rough, and many of them are being put to death, and they don't have anything. They've lost their possessions in their homes. We want to help out. And they weren't forced. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says that, we, that God doesn't want us to give under compulsion. It's not mandatory. And he wants a willing heart. And their attitude was, without being told to do it, we want to share. We want to help. Why? Listen to how he put it again. Let me tell you about the grace of God that was given to the churches in Macedonia. In other words, they had been taught by God to do it. So here's what I want you to pray. God, put that in my heart. Put that in my heart. I'm not going to try to go do what Jim says. I'm not going to try to go be a good Christian. I'm not going to grudgingly and out of duty start writing a check. I really want you to put that desire to share what I have in me. Oh, and there's a big difference between believing that he can and believing he will. And watch God give you little opportunities to just do it. A little bit here, a little bit there. And watch how you all of a sudden start to find how much fun it is. What a joy it is. Because you know you're part of what's going on. Because you had got to share in that. And so, they had been taught by God to love each other. And how they loved each other was they were making sure that everybody was taken care of physically and spiritually. All right, now, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and look at verses 13 through 18. Let's take a little time we have and what we have left to really start beginning to dive into the rapture. Paul goes on and says now in verses 13 through 18, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, Paul has been mentioning and referring or referencing Jesus' return, but now he begins to teach on it in much more detail. All right. But before we can unpack these verses, it's obvious from Paul's writing that the Thessalonian believers had concerns about Jesus' coming that they must have shared with Timothy. And there is obviously a foundation of teaching about Jesus' coming that Paul had laid out in his first visit that will help us interpret what Paul is saying here, all right? Paul had taught them about Jesus' return to the earth to come get them. I'm going to remind you of the fact that he's been talking about that. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, look at verse 10. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, And to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Chapter 2, look at verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? So again, at his coming, look at chapter 3, verse 13. 
so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. Again, for we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul had taught in many times to them about the coming of the Lord. So he's referencing the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. But Paul didn't just teach the Thessalonians about the coming of the Lord. If you've done a little study, and we'll chase a couple right now, you'll see that Paul taught pretty much everywhere he went about the coming of the Lord for his church. Go to Titus. You're in 1 Thessalonians. Turn over a couple of through the T section to Titus chapter 2. Look at verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and look at verse 7. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7, Paul said this. He said, so that you're not lacking in any, any gift, in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Romans chapter 8. Paul talks about the return of Jesus in Romans 8 in a different way, but he gets in a little bit more detail here, and he talks about how when this happens, we're going to get new bodies. In Romans 8, verses 18 through 25, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So here, as Paul was talking in 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll deal with it two weeks from now when we get back together in much more detail, he's saying at the return of Jesus for his church, he's going to give us new bodies at that time. We who are alive are going to be caught up and we're going to be transformed We'll get our new bodies in that process as we go meet the Lord. He also said, those who have gone to be with Jesus are going to come with him. Their bodies are going to come out of the ground. And we're going to all go be with the Lord together, getting our new bodies at that time. So Paul has been teaching them this, but not just the Thessalonians. Pretty much everywhere he goes, he's getting them ready for this. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. So, I don't know if you caught this yet or not. As Paul went around teaching the church, he didn't teach them to watch for the Antichrist. There's not instructions about the Antichrist and what he's going to do and how you got to hang on and wait until so many days later and whatever. He's telling the church, watch for Jesus. That's what's going to happen next, is Jesus is going to come and gather his church. 
And he taught it in such a way that they were to be ready at any moment. And again, like I told you, they were expecting it to happen. That's why the early church would greet each other with the term Maranatha, till the Lord comes. They, it was expected to happen soon. But now a problem has happened since Paul left, and he's taught all this about the rapture and be ready. It could happen at any moment. I expect it to could happen in my lifetime. But Christians started to die. And so when Timothy went back to check on him, one of the things the early church was saying to Timothy was, um, we've been taught by Paul about this awesome day that Jesus is going to come before the great day of the Lord and the judgment of the world. And he, we're all going to go get to be with him. And what about those who died? Are they going to miss that awesome day? Because they were looking forward to that day when Jesus shows up in the clouds and they go be with him and now, all of a sudden, these people are dying, and they're thinking, oh, they're going to miss that day. And Paul now begins to teach them that, no, 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 no. Um, they're not going to miss it. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. You might have missed what Paul said there. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, look at verse 13. He'd already given them a little hint. He said, so he, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with who? With all his saints. So he's talking about the fact that he'd already told them that they were going to come with him. But now go back to chapter 4 and verse 13. Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So what we're going to do when we come back together, and I'm going to let you out early tonight because we have to stop where we stopped last night. But let me just say this. We're going to, when we come back together in two weeks, I'm going to take you through a very detailed study of this term sleep in the Bible, because it's very important that we research it biblically to really understand what he's talking about. But the Bible in many places, and I'm going to show you a bunch, uses the term sleep for believers as, as reference for death. Because when a Christian dies, are they dead? No, they're still alive. Their body sure looks like they're dead, but the real them is still alive. It's kind of like when someone's asleep. You ever seen someone asleep, so asleep, you wondered if they're dead? My wife hates it when I tell this story. But I have a picture of her in public at what used to be called downtown Disney, now Disney Springs, where we were so exhausted that we sat in a couple of chairs in a public place, and she fell dead asleep. So dead asleep that I had to pull out my phone and take a picture and I have that picture still. I won't show it to you unless you offer me money because I have to get a Christmas present for my wife that's really nice for the fact that I'm telling you this story. But let me just say this. People were coming by and going, is she okay? And I'm laughing because I've seen her sleep like this before. But in a chair, in public, mouth open, drooling, she is dead. But she's still alive. And in the same way, many times in the Bible, and we'll deal this when we come back together, the, the term asleep is referencing those believers who have died. All right? Now, in the same way, Paul said, we don't you be worried about those who are asleep. They've already gone to be with him, and he's going to bring them with him when he comes back. Now, we'll also deal when we come back together again as well, the fact that there are some 
denominations, not very many nowadays, but there's some denominations that teach soul sleep, that when a believer dies, their body, their soul goes to sleep, and they don't wake up again until the resurrection. Well, that doesn't line up with the Holy Scripture either, and we're going to deal with that again when we come back together next uh, two weeks from now as well. But for tonight, let me encourage you with a passage of Scripture, two passages of Scripture, one you know, and one I just saw recently that I've never looked at in this way. Go to Hebrews chapter 9 and look at verse 28. Hebrews 9, 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Isn't that cool? Now, the other one you know, and that's in John 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms if it weren't so, what I have told you that go, I go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. Listen to the context of what he's saying. In my father's house, there are many rooms. And if it weren't true, what I have told you that I go prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you'll be where I am. I believe that believers who fall asleep in Christ before the rapture have Jesus come get them personal. Isn't that what happened with Stephen? He saw heaven open and the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father and welcoming him into heaven. Paul said, absent the body, present with the Lord. We're going to talk a lot about that when we come back in two weeks. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to come take you to be with me where I am, either individually if we die before the rapture or at the rapture when it all happens together for all of us. And what does Paul say in verse chapter 4? 4 verses 13 through 18, especially verse 18, encourage each other with these words. Folks, hang on. Our salvation is closer today than it was yesterday. How much time do we have? I don't know. Could it happen at any moment? Yes, it could. Is anything waiting for it to happen? No. At the same time, could it be a long time before he comes? Possibly. We don't know. Don't worry about the timing of it. Know the truth of it and let that encourage you. Because even if you're not here when that awesome rapture day happens, you will be here because he's going to bring you with him. I love you. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.